Francisco. Wow. You beautiful, sweet, soon to be drenched. The city by the bay. Good morning. Hello, San Francisco, and good morning. Welcome to Roll Over Easy, the... Why, why do they sound like that edition? <laughs> 
Wait, what's going on with Roll Over Easy? Why do they sound like that edition? Good morning, San Francisco. Should we be whispering? Are we in the library still? <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to bring this mic way down. All right. San Francisco, hello. Ooh. Uh, how are you feeling this morning? You know, I'm feeling like we're going to play a radio play this morning. What? I know. We're, we're switching up. Totally different. Ten years in. We've still got new tricks up our sleeve. <laughs> I do like that this is definitely a new trick and it is up our sleeve. And it is ten years in. You're right. Or, you know, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary in December of this year. And we're still still pulling new ones out. New rabbits out of the hat. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, a thank you to uh, Nicole, who is, like, giving us this, this rabbit to, to pull out of the hat today. We've got, like, a very exciting and new thing because of her, like, creativity and joy and dedication and i'm like i'm so pumped for this you said it so well we're going to be listening to the radio play for voices the forever wave hire a rollover easy for all your post-production <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll sound like we're on two different mics in two different locations because we are we are we are we are So Nicole's play, we're gonna we're gonna cue it up here just in a couple of minutes. Uh, it's about ninety minutes long, ninety seven minutes uh, is in total. So we're gonna play that here pretty soon. Uh, but we did want to say hello and good morning to everybody. Uh, let you know what we got going on this week, which is the play. Let you know what we got going on next week, which is also a different show than you're used to. And then the third week, and then we're back. I think. No, we're back. Then we're doing it again. No, we're doing it. Um, I think everyone out there, Radio Land, can hear us just fine. But uh, tweet in at us. Let us know where you're up to, what you're up to this morning. We are at Roll Over Easy here on BFF.FM. We're Roll Over Easy on uh, what's the bird site? Twitter, I think is what they still is it still yeah, Twitter? And then we're uh, Roll Over Easy at SFBA. That's San Francisco Bay, BA, uh, San Francisco Bay Area dot social sfba.social and roll over easy over there as well so drop on over say hello send in a picture of your cute cat this morning you got a dog that's sipping coffee i don't know you got a parrot that knows how to do a french press like these are the things we're hoping for also (laughs) (laughs) a parrot could definitely do a french press (laughs) yeah and if you got a parrot that can do a french press like have them come on the show what else is Yeah, if you know, if you've got a parent that does a French press, you definitely have to join us on the air some week. Oh, goodness. Um, well, can I give the folks the weather real quick before we hop into it? Yeah, definitely. All right. So currently it feels like 47. Uh, it is 47. Mm. And the high today is going to be 53 degrees. But that's not the big news of the day. The big news of the day on the weather front is that it's just going to start dumping and it's apparently not going to stop. Um <laughs> Jerry has uh, asked for another atmospheric river, and the Earth has delivered. And San Francisco's meteorologist writing about the most traumatic figure there is, the San Francisco weather. <laughs> yeah, so when I look at my forecast here, there is almost two inches of rain coming today. Oh, okay. Um, there's a half an inch tomorrow, another h- half inch or so, or a third of an inch on Saturday, another third of an inch on Sunday, another inch on Monday, another half inch on Tuesday, it's like next Wednesday before we even start to see the sun coming out again. This so. is why uh, this is why I bought sandbags for my for my place. Oh yeah, sand. Prep them uh, if you if you got flooding. Prep for flooding. People are gonna start digging up the dunes on Ocean Beach again. <laughs> 
I would love to see a human line of uh, sand dune, sandbagging uh, individuals from Ocean Beach stretching across the city where it's like, hey, this human, this human, uh, you know, line goes all the way across San Francisco. At any point you need a bag, just like meet us in the meet us somewhere on the Beta Breakers route and, uh, and we'll hand you a bag. <laughs> I love that. Oh, goodness. Um, all right. The sunrise today was at 631 a.m. The sun set the mm. magic hour. What do you think it is? Ooh, uh, I think that sunset today, it's after 6. I'm going to guess like, I'm going to say 6.11. 6.11? Yeah, spot on. You're nice. back on it. Nice. nice. Yeah, 6.11. I'll take it. That's crazy. Uh, Earth is getting brighter and a little bit wetter. And by next week, what time is sunset going to be next week? I don't know. Is next week daylight savings or is it the week after? It's next. I think it's Sunday. Wow. Don't follow Rollover Easy for all your most accurate time information. Yeah. Follow Rollover Easy for your silly community radio. But I think it's this weekend. Wow. Oh, wow. That that would be something right there. I think so. I'm not certain. Tweet in at us if we're way off. Yeah, it's this it weekend. This week. Nice. Sunday. Yeah. So next week, sunset's going to be at 7 something? 7, like 18. What? That's crazy. San Francisco is back. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Who do you think was? Uh, who do you think the first person to uh, twizzle, toot, mastodon, whatever the verb is, or tweet in at us this morning? It's been Mac for the last several weeks, so I'm going to go with Mac again. So that's a pretty good guess. I think it is. It is a good guess. That it's Mac. I think the very first person that tweeted into us this morning was Thomas Rogers. Hello. Yes. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Thomas. Indeed. Uh, Thomas says, good morning from the get up early and go for a walk because it's clear now, but then it's going to rain for two weeks club. Yeah, that's Love the it. way right there, Thomas. Love it. Look at that. Uh, and then I love this um, little emoji thing that's just like all of the rains. <laughs> I see it. I see it. Thomas's emoji game is strong on uh, on the internet. And Jeff tweets in. I love this. Jeff Gay. Good morning, Jeff, as well. Jeff tweets in says, Red Sky at Morning Radio Show Hosts Take Warning. <laughs> Jeff, this is good and ominous. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to see Jeff, uh, I guess maybe not biking around a little bit today, but like this feels like an ominous sign that I'm going to run into Jeff around town today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you got, do you bike in the rain much or are you like staying dry? So I pitched an idea to a friend the other night, uh, just last night. Uh, I said, Hey, we got to get together. We either wait until the rain clears or we pick the stormiest time in the next two weeks and we go outside during it. So I might be doing some very, very wet raining, uh, biking here pretty soon yeah, or, yeah. or none at all, but I'm, I'm pitching the extremes. I love that commitment. I'm there for it. I'm there for it. What about yourself? Um, I, prefer to stay indoors during the rain i want to have like socks and hot cup of coffee and marvin Gaye playing and a book like the outdoors are meant for the sun yeah 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 i feel like your urban arrow also turns into a bathtub by the time that you make it across town <laughs> great question like do i have a hot tub and i just don't know about it <laughs> you might you very much might <laughs> 
Uh, also, good morning goes out to Sutro Tower Hello. this morning. Says, good morning, roll over easy. I think those meteorologists were wrong about this atmospheric river. And tweets in a shot of some very ominous looking clouds, but no water. I think the water comes in like an hour or so, a couple hours. The water got a little bit. It, it started this morning. Let's say that. Mm, okay. Somewhere between the donut shop and the alley, the water was coming. Excellent. But then it stopped. So you might still have a little bit of time out there. I'm into it. I'm into a little bit of that. Uh, a little bit of that rain, sort of, sort of teasing what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the rain is. It's. It's just hinting at us mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, wherever you are this morning, stay warm, stay dry, and enjoy a radio play. Enjoy something that we don't normally get an opportunity to experience, which is handcrafted, curated, written, and produced radio from a San Franciscan like Nicole. Yeah, and we should say this is um, kind of the kickoff to a new series that we're doing called Future Frisco. Frisco, 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 Frisco. <laughs> yeah, we're doing Future Frisco for the next couple of weeks where we're talking with folks about what do you envision San Francisco to be like in the future? Not five years, not 10 years. Think of like on the time horizon of 50 years plus. Like think about San Francisco uh, because some days uh, in 50 years, someone, an archivist is going to find this and they're going to go, look at these silly predictions. (laughs) Uh, Well, and what's great about today's show is um, the forever wave is set 50 years into the future. Mm -hmm. And you might say a 50 year into the future. I don't know if I have the most... uh, roll over easy optimistic of opinions about that and if that's the case know that this radio play is going to talk about mutual aid and all sorts of different things that um hopefully do become more of the norm and regardless of how much the seas rise over the next (laughs) several decades um our community will remain um and so i'm excited to dive into that with this radio play and i'm excited to have a bunch of guests come on and tell us what they think future frisco is going to be like totally agree totally it's going to be a great one yeah. Uh, want to throw a few more hellos. One person was involved in the Forever Wave, the map designer, Brito Justice. Woo-hoo! Brito says, can you let us know if the Van S Ferry is delayed? <laughs> I feel like that's foreshadowing for a joke inside of the uh, inside of the play that we're going to find out about. And Seldrew gives us a Woo-hoo! good morning and a hello goes back to you. It looks like he's got a couple of pour overs going on right there, which sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, how are you making coffee these days? clever sometimes pour over i'll probably do the uh, chemex this morning yeah yeah what about yourself i'm i'm like a broken record i'm still on that clever train it's pretty good it's it's pretty darn good i will say i did buy a french press again because um Mm. i may have them for a very reasonable price and if i'm making pancakes for folks i just can't be making one cup of coffee at a time either very true very true Oh, goodness. Well, uh, again, if you got a picture of a parakeet on a French press, please tweet it in to us. <laughs> Join us on the show at some, num- some number of weeks in the future. And uh, we'd love to, love to chat with you. Uh, and Peter Hartlob coming in with some great news this morning uh, says that he is happy to report that the 1970s Muni streetcar has sold. And after a short drive up to the mountains, you'll be able to broadcast from it in 2324. <gasps> I can't wait to read this. A Geyserville couple. I love Geyserville. Cool. This is great. Uh, roll over easy. Peter, for our, uh, I guess, our 12th, 11th anniversary, we're broadcasting from the 1970 Muni streetcar. I'm so glad that the story's continuing on, but I can't wait to get like updates about it in six months. Like, Mini Streetcar makes friends with all the goats on the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, last summer, I stayed in an Airbnb that was a London double-decker bus what? somewhere deep in the countryside in France. And it was delightful and goofy and charming. And I can't wait for the Munich <laughs> to happen here. So good morning to you, Peter. And thank you for all the good news. Good morning, Peter, indeed. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I think it's just about time that we hop on into the forever wave here in the next minute or so. Uh, we're going to be playing the radio broadcast form of this. Uh, I would say, after we read this Lisa Mon tweet, to stick around. Um, there's going to be a bit of it. You might be able to catch a bit of the interview at the end, uh, but we're going to be, just as time all works out, you're just going to be hearing the radio play. It's going to be broken up into a couple of chunks, a little bit in the middle. You're going to hear a little bit of a reintroduction for the play, uh, which is fantastic. Resets that context before going into the second part. And uh, that's going to be that's going to be the show today. This is like this is like a real radio show with a real radio uh, play for voices. Yeah, uh, super excited. Get under those covers and um, enjoy the story. It's um, it's our delight to share it with you today. Absolutely. One last tweet. Lisa Mon says, "Awaiting rollover easy's forever wave." wave. As we trudge down B. Hutch's Far Out Avenue, then we fly out to Central Park and search for Flacco. It's the owl that's still on the loose in Central Park. Again, this is a great San Francisco story happening in New York right now. <laughs> I just love it. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit some buttons. I'm going to cue some things up over on my side. Make sure that we got the forever wave all ready to go. We do. All right. Let's do it. Shall we hit it? Let's hit it. All right, San Francisco. This uh, play will give you an introduction itself. So we'll hop right off. Uh, take care of yourself this week. Take care of those in your community, those around you. Spread a little bit of love. Spread a little bit of joy. And do what you can to make San Francisco just a little bit better in your own special way. We love you. And we will talk to you next week. The Forever Wave, a radio play for voices, written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern, inspired by Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas and set in the climate-changed San Francisco of 2070. I'll, uh, I'll give you Combining a call geography, climate science, Bay Area history, and the voices of the survivors and the dead, the Forever Wave is a comprehensive exploration of a what-if future that seems ever more likely every year we fail to address the impacts of climate change and economic inequality. Hey. <clears throat> what communities uh, will emerge when our systems have collapsed entirely and normal is a historical relic? What can the hilltop dwellers of the future teach us about ourselves in the now? And what are the things we can start building in order to avoid their fate? Tears of this world were to open We'd all be washed away If the stories those tears have to tell 
the beginning it's just before dawn and the san francisco hilltops are shrouded in darkness and the night sky swaddled in heavy blankets of fog in darkness the hill dwellers lie wrapped in comforters and sleeping bags sweatshirts and beach towels plastic tarps and insulating foam some slung between treetops in their hammocks Some dug into the sand dunes, snug as crabs. Some curled up in the back seats of abandoned sedans and RVs. Some stowed away in the cabins of sailboats and houseboats and the 300-year-old carcass of an old cargo ship bobbing in the shifting water that surrounds the hilltops. A small chain of islands stretching across an ever-widening bay. In dreams... The hill dwellers mingle in streets built from imagination and hazy recollection. In dreams, they test out their would-have-dones, their should-have-beens, their never-wills. In dreams, they rise above the landscape and look it over from edge to edge. The hilltops, the shorelines, and the forever wave. 
Back before the forever wave, these hills were notable mainly for the way they inconvenienced the population. Only the rugged, they like to imply, would put up with such obvious obstacles. Architects embraced their possibilities, adorning them with towers, terraces, wide windows facing the wider sea. The phallic rise of Coit Tower, the spider-legged freakishness of Sutro Tower, the imposing bulk of Grace Cathedral, stalwart monuments of San Francisco's past, now repurposed by the hill dwellers according to their needs. Long before this land played host to these monuments of capital and colonialism, it was home to a people who needed no skyscrapers nor towers to remind themselves of their importance. From the east to the west, from the south to the north, they stewarded the land and its bounty, lived well according to their needs and in harmony with their environment and each other. Within the borders of present-day San Francisco, we refer to both the land and its indigenous inhabitants as Yalamu, part of the Ramatush Olone people of the San Francisco Peninsula. They live here still, not relics of the past, but exemplars of how to carry a long legacy forward into the future. Take time to consider the land you occupy wherever you are. Reflect on its deep roots and honor its original inhabitants. Back before the forever wave, the West watched in horror as hurricanes swept up and down the East Coast. Only the old timers remembered the one they called Katrina, which flooded the streets of New Orleans, killing hundreds, displacing thousands, a maddening and tragic event, but one soon forgotten in the barrage of ever-increasing superstorms that became a regional norm. There have always been hurricanes, they said in the West, not comprehending. Because it wasn't just the waters on the East Coast that were rising, and it wasn't just the earthquakes and fires that they had to fear. All along the West Coast, the waters were rising too. All along, the waves kept pushing further up the shores until one day they woke from their sleep and the waves blocked out the sun and there was no ignoring them anymore. The forever wave was coming. They called it the forever wave, but really it was more like a tide, a king tide the greatest, most imperial king tide of all time. A tide that would never roll back out to sea again. A tide that reshaped a peninsula into an island chain and a thriving metropolis into a loose collective of encampments on the highest ground. A tide that reduced the many levels of haves and have-nots to just these, those who survived and those who did not. Plenty of people left before the wave hit, of course. They took the evacuation orders seriously, loaded up their vehicles, and flowed across the state lines. A great exodus. But not everyone left. Some folks didn't have the resources to leave. Some folks were in denial until it was too late. And some of them treated it as an opportunity. If you survive the apocalypse, don't you get to help build what comes after it? Listen. 
There goes the night, slipping away through the branches of coastal pines and oak trees. The great egrets stretch their necks and beat their wings to greet the approaching sun. The horned owls remove themselves from view and settle in for a long day's nap. And the hill dwellers begin to stir to the rhythm of the day. Under the protective roof of an old school bus, from the cocoon of an overstuffed couch, El Capitan shifts in his sleep. Almost, almost, but not quite breaking the surface of wakefulness. Estoy esperando. In this liminal state, he can almost see the shorelines of his younger days. The soft sand, the low tide, the way the land dipped and rose, dipped and rose from the battle-scarred deck of his fishing boat. In the morning calls of the egrets, he can hear the voices of the drowned. Who goes there? Tis I, Capitan, Matty Kubrick, who once drank an entire bottle of the good rum in honor of our biggest halibut hall. Y yo, Luis Mendoza, tu mano derecho, your right-hand man until I was caught out and swept away by a sneaker wave in Montada. Siempre me acuerdo de mi esposa, Adalina. Adalina, dile que lo extraño. Remember me? I was the steward for the ILWU. When the forever wave came, it rolled right in through my windows on 48th Avenue. I never woke up. I sold you some pants. You said you had something to celebrate? I mended your nets. I smiled at you once from the pier. I remember. You never forgot my smile. I'm smiling still from the bottom of the sea. I remember. I remember you all. And how is it now, without us by your side? Como va? Who will sing the Union song now that we are gone? Who will feed the pigeons in Union Square? There's no Union Square left, love. Who will remember how it was to not have anything to remember? When life stretched out like an endless possibility. All future, no past. Such possibility never existed in my time. No, nor mine. But for a moment, it felt that it did. On Sutro Island, Soraya Broussard sits bolt upright from her dreams, which dissolve in the weak sunlight like sugar in teacups. Only a lingering impression of Calliope Carter, the object of her desire, remains. As she rises, Calliope's face is the first thing she holds onto in her mind, and she stretches her hands to touch first the sky and then her toes, sky and toes, singing. The water is wide I cannot cross o'er And neither have I Wings to fly Build me a boat That can carry two And boats shall roll my love and I. While from the top of a wooded peak overlooking Portola Bay, Calliope swings down from her hammock to touch the earth, rubbing her dreams from her eyes with calloused hands. Good morning, dear world. What news? She cocks her head and listens. 
blows a kiss towards that faraway hilltop in the west, where Soraya stands in the doorway of the falling-apart garden shed she calls her home. Good morning, dear Soraya. Ah, Calliope, how I wish you were here by my side. We would tend the garden rose together, our hands dug deep into the warming earth, collecting the tender greens and cultivating roots for the winter. Ah, Soraya, how I wish you were here by my side. We would scavenge the bay together from my skip. We would scour the shorelines for scrap metal and trade it in for blankets and beer. We would fill bags full of the wild plums. We would shake the pollen from the flowering fennel stalks and save it for seasoning. We would fill our nets with sand dabs. We would hang kelp fronds over branches to dry. I would wrap myself around you at night to keep off the chill and match your breath to mine. Slow and sweet. Oh, my Calliope, song of my heart. I can hear your voice in the gentle music of the rising tide. Jutting up from the coastal ridge, damp with dew, a brick fortress once called the Presidio Landmark stands strong. Once a hospital, then a ruin, then a luxury, the landmark is now best described as just that, a landmark. Its abandoned rooms repurposed once more into hospital beds and supply stores and gathering spaces neutral ground for the hill dwellers who come to learn the latest mainland news, trade for goods, and forge new alliances, or break them. Grace Hahn circles the perimeter, stamping her feet and clapping her hands to wake the circulation. As the caretaker of the landmark, there's not much that escapes Grace's attention. She fills her lungs with fog, scanning the ridge for anything that stirs. A lone hawk soars above her, doing the same. That old ragged-winged fellow's back on his bullshit, I see. There was a time there when I thought he'd had it, or moved on to better hunting grounds. I should have known he'd come back around. It's almost always easier in the end to stick with what you know. Some small part of familiarity to cling to while the world drowns. Like me watching over this great wreck. Below Grace's feet, as she circles around the back of the landmark, the bones of long-dead mariners shift in the ground, covered in loam and sailcloth, time and concrete. The mariners have been lost to all, including themselves, for centuries. If Grace stands still, she can almost hear their murmuring voices blending in with the rustle of the eucalyptus leaves, the screech of gulls. We're sailing down the river to Liverpool, heave away, Santiano, around Cape Horn to Frisco Bay, way up in California. Aye, lads, now heave to the left. Let's have a bit of calm of a morning. Let's have a bit of porridge, a bit of beer. So it's heave her up, and away we'll go, heave away. 
Santiano. Heave her up and away we'll go way up in California. Sail long enough and you won't get very far on land. Your very bones will fill with the swells and currents. Your lungs will not function without the tang of salt in the air. You'll lurch on land like a slick-bellied seal looking for a patch to lie on, humping the dirt like an Egypt. No seasoning necessary. Only the salt of the sea for me. Sail long enough, and you won't even remember the land. The way that it stayed still, gripped at your feet, kept you heavy with gravity and hunger. Your old mum, your sweethearts, the village priest. The dark cloud of anger that was your dad, who drove you out the house, drove you onto your first ship, and you never looked back, no. You never looked. Just one more swallow before I take my turn at the mast. They tell you you're going to see the world, and you do. The whole wet ball of it. The deep green waves of the Atlantic. The crisp blue slap of the Andaman Sea. The ferocity of the Cape. But as to the land, you'll find the same sorry collection of rogues and fools at any port. And ne'er be given the chance to explore higher ground. They don't tell you that part when you sign on, but it's true. Today's the day when I'll finally spot that mermaid sure as I am a man. I know she's out there somewhere, combing the thick kelp of her locks with a pearl comb, caressing the rocks with her fleshy tail. So it's heave her up and away we'll go, heave away, Santiano. Heave her up and away we'll go, way up in California. Paddle be the nurses, ready for the rounds. Changing linens and bedpans, dispensing herbs and comfort. Opening windows and curtains to let the light in. 8 a.m. and breakfast will be served. Wheel down the hall on carts. A how do you do and a hot mug of tea to hold. Wild sage and rosehip, eucalyptus and pine tips. After breakfast, Dr. Hashemi will take the stairs from his top floor apartment to be briefed on the treatment plan for the day. Carl Maldorf, the inventory manager, will open the doors to the storeroom and Magistrate Isabel Flores will take her first appointment in the conference room. And the hill dwellers will come and be welcomed and be heard. Crouched at the base of Mount Olympus, once commemorated as the geological heart of San Francisco, the Songus family lies dreaming in their compact cottage. Alexei Songus dreams of a childhood he barely remembers when he's awake. Days of picking blackberries and combing side streets and alleyways for scrap and adventure. Sleeping rough wherever he landed. Chasing the neighborhood girls, who then became women, whom he chases still. Give me those blackberries and I'll let you have a taste. Give me a taste and I'll let you have these potatoes. <laughs> You're a naughty one, aren't you, Alexi Songus? Alexi, 
When are you coming over? It's been so long. Meanwhile, the Songus twins, Jax and Jazz, lie in their sleeping bags, two identical peas in two fleece-lined pods, still a couple of years away from choosing their genders, as is the custom. But aged out of the elementary school, they spend their days learning from the makers and homesteaders of the neighborhood, preparing for life beyond their parents' watch. Jax dreams of bobbing along the sunset shoreline atop a giant persimmon, as in a storybook they once read, a pair of red and green parrots perched on their shoulders. Full speed ahead, my hearties. First one to spot the Golden Gate Bridge gets a prize. We'll be fishing at the headlands by mid-morning and sailing round Russian Hill by the late afternoon. Watch for sharks. Don't get too close to the sea lions and we'll all be home for dinner. While Jazz dreams of food, only of food, always of food. Apples and honey and wine. Porridge and potatoes and radish greens. First to rise from the comfort of bed is Carolyn Songus, who makes sure to jar her husband awake on her way out the door. Next, she rouses the twins, curled up in the common room. Rise and shine, my darlings. The sooner we get started with the day, the sooner we'll all be done with our chores. Alexi, mind you come home tonight, love. Jazz is skinning the rabbits and needs a hand. Jax is building a bicycle and needs some welding done. I've knit a new batch of socks that we'll need to take down to the mercantile. And we're down to our last bag of grain, and we'll need to go to the landmark for more next week. I want to hike up Mount Olympus and read Treasure Island. I want to help neighbor Collins with his beehives. You'll do what Moms tells you to do, and you'll like it. Now, you all be good, and I'll bring you back a treat. But where are you going? What kind of a treat? He slouches out the door in a hurry to be free and trots up the walkway, swinging his arms and whistling a bright melody to the sun. It's a good day to be alive. As he whistles and walks, the whispers start behind him. A chatter of neighbors looking out of windows and taking note of whatever, or whoever, passes by. There goes that scoundrel Alexi T. Kids are no better. What that Carolyn puts up with? A saint. A martyr. They stole my figs. He never returned that toolbox he borrowed. And all of them rabbits. Sitting there in his garage, plain as day. Those socks she knits hold up for the long haul, though. No lumps and no drop stitches. As fine a pair of socks as you can get anywhere. They don't deserve her. That's for sure. Or is it her that don't deserve having to put it up with them? Standing straight and severe on her terrace, sipping a cup of nettle tea, Mrs. Kincaid's watches intently as Alexei Tsongas saunters by. He doesn't see her, and it must be said that few do. She's been rattling around inside this old house since well before the forever wave. Once a fresh-faced debutante with a life of ease sparkling before her like the crystal chandeliers hanging in the hallways, she shut herself in during the pandemic that once ravaged the land, never to emerge from the safety of her home again. 
An almost 300-year-old home once known as the Apricot House for its pastel orange paint, which has now flaked away over time. And a spacious backyard full of fruit and nut trees that still help to sustain her. Despite her reclusive ways, she's landed not one, but two husbands over the years. Mr. Kincaid, spelled with an E, and Mr. Kincaid, without. Each seduced by the contradictory gap between her no-nonsense demeanor and the soft vulnerability of her agoraphobia. But even these would-be protectors couldn't defend against time, and they passed from the realm of the living to the next with hardly a fight. Their ghosts linger with her still, too attached to following her lead. Tell me your tasks in order. I must make the bed and, and fold the pajamas. I must fill the kettle and wash the cups. I must dust the shelves with a damp cloth. I must check on the spiders to see that they are well fed. I must empty out the chamber pot and rinse them well. And don't forget to wash your hands. Next door is one of several so-called feral houses that dot the city. A self-governed refuge of children who support each other through scavenging and odd jobs until their 20th birthday, when they must depart and strike out on their own to make room for new arrivals. Some ferals were abandoned by their parents. Some left home on their own. Most come to the feral house with only the clothing on their backs. Some might have a blanket or sleeping bag besides. They rotate their chores and share their goods and tend each other's wounds. The visible scrapes and bruises they get from climbing trees and scavenging firewood. And the deeper, invisible wounds that squeeze their insides and torment their dreams. Although Mrs. Kincaid pretends not to notice them, the ferals help themselves freely to her harvest while ensuring that the best fruits and nuts wind up on her doorstep to sustain her. In this way, they maintain a symbiotic relationship of community and care, even while feigning the indifference of city life past. All hands on deck. We're running low on freshies and there's no more milk. I can't go out there. Someone's stolen my shoes and I'm preparing the chicken coop. I'm heading out to look for more clothing scores. What size do you take? Uh, size three in sneaks. It's Hector and Arsham's turn for the dogs. The plums are ripening next door, and we have a basket of compost to bring over. Good gracious, what is that smell? And don't forget to throw in a few worms from the bin. Disgusting little brutes. She means the worms. She does not mean the worms. From her attic window, Alina Khrushchev, the seamstress's apprentice, watches as Alexei passes by, greeting everyone he sees, whether they like it or not. She draws the curtain and runs her fingers, long and languid, across the peaks and valleys of her own body, her heart a hummingbird in a cage of ribs. Mm. Bring me a lover with a taste for adventure and I'll teach them how to stitch their hands to my body without even a needle and thread. The fog rolls off as morning rolls into midday. 
and Sister Precious Little stands at the very top of Coit Tower, the mighty bay stretched out before her, shining in the morning sun. As the parrots of Telegraph Hill fly by, Sister Precious Little spreads her arms as if to join them in flight and prays. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. In the name of the mothers and the sisters and the living and the dead, Amen. Back in the before times, Sister Precious Little was the newest and youngest initiate in a band of kind and queer nuns with outrageous names and artful makeup, who raised alms for the poor, held sainting ceremonies for the righteous, and threw the very best masses for their ever-appreciative congregation. Now, she finds unexpected solace in the poetics of the Christian Bible, while skipping over its more confounding contradictions. And while there are those who seek her out for special occasions, birthday parties, circus performances, weddings, and even last rites, her usual congregation are the birds, the raccoons, and the long-gone socialists who adorn the walls of Coit Tower as ever-wakeful murals, standing guard against historical erasure. No matter what the day brings, we'll see it through together. Myself and Victor Arnatoff and Ronaldo Cuneo and Jane Berlandina, the memories of all my blessed sisters and fairies and queens who have passed on from this timeline to the next, and all of the very alive birds and animals who come to worship with me and praise the morning sun. While from a crumbling mound six miles west, the king of Strawberry Hill offers his own contribution to the chorus. Now the sun is near its zenith, and so am I, standing at attention and surveying the land as far as my eyes can travel. The jutting apparatus of the Golden Gate, the muscled haunches of the Marin headlands, hunkering still by the cool, wet bowl of the bay, like a very good boy guarding the waters. The golden grass, mellowing in the sunshine, gentle wavelets lapping at the shoreline, and threads of spider silk and beetle gilt catching the light. The king shuffles from one end of his minute kingdom to the other, surrounded by a swirling eddy where the paddle boats used to cross and the legendary lady of Stowe Lake wrung her hands in the moonlight and wept for her lost babies. She weeps no more, though the water's thick with babies, rolling in the currents like strands of bull kelp, stripped to the bone by time and by the hunger of the sea. I hereby proclaim that the morning now be declared the noontide 
and all of my subjects shall honor it and be glad. On his way to his shift at Lacey Bruegel's draft house, Valtteri Lati stops beside a makeshift zip line and places a jug of beer, a dozen hard boils, and a pound of cheese into a metal bucket. Before sending it across the water to its destination at the top of Strawberry Hill, he reaches into the waterproof pouch on the bottom of the bucket and takes out two hand-carved wooden coins, the King of Strawberry Hill's personal tender. Although far from legal tender, the King's coins contain value to those who cherish his eccentricities. On one side of each is carved an egret standing on one foot in a widening ripple of water. On the other, a profile of a man with a battered stovepipe hat and a week's worth of stubble. Valtteri pockets both and sends the food over with a loud whistle. There goes a feast fit for a king. Meanwhile, Hyacinth Galong unlocks the padlocks and rolls up the gates of the mercantile. She matches Alexei's robust wave with one of her own as he passes through. I'll be needing another dozen pairs of those socks, Alexei. You'll have two dozen pairs by Friday. Make hay while the sun shines and make love while the moon lulls. Make friends, not foes. Make joy, not woes. Care for the sick, give kindness to the young, and mind your own house, lest yours be minded. Now then, Senor Hernandez, what'll it be today? Mint leaves and chamomile. A box of nails, a box of matches, two pairs of gloves for the gardening, bag of soap root, una docena eggs, two pounds of frijoles, and a cup of lard. Ponlo se mi cuenta. Tell your husband I could use another generator if he finds one that's got some life to it. Ah, Jew and everyone else in this town, Senora Galang. Ah, but none other who offers these very goods that you've stocked your pantry with, eh, Senor Hernandez? I will ask him. And I will extend the cuenta. Down by the docks, Old Bill waits for the day's haul to arrive, and Francisco the baker, who's already been up for five hours, loads a cart with loaves and sets his son Alfonso on his midday rounds. That's one loaf for three, two for five, ten for twenty. One loaf for me, two for thee, and ten is plenty. At the landmark, Isabel Flores sits down to go over the monthly reports. Carl Maldorf receives a shipment of vegetable oil from the mainland that he'll use to brew up a batch of biodiesel. The nurses have pushed their patients outside and lined them up in their cots and chairs, while, deep asleep in her chambers, Grace Hahn floats in the warm, tropical waters of her dreams. From his perch above the western shore, El Capitan leans over the remnants of a chain-link fence, listening to the timber of familiar feet and neighborhood gossip. A lone bicyclist rolls by, ringing their bell as bright as the day. There goes An Nguyen, off to help old Bill rustle crates of crabs and cabinets off of the scavenger dinghies. The founder of the original feral house and the first to leave it behind at the designated age of 20. An's grown into their adulthood with grace and purpose, helping at the docks, 
impersonating a pedicab in the high season, packing boxes for Carl Maldorf up at the landmark? Let's just say I get around. Down the block, Gemma Baxter hangs the wash and chases toddlers, her own, and the foundlings that have appeared on her doorstep over the years. Man, babe, or hungry wayfarer, Gemma's never turned away a friend in need, nor a friendly need, and her home is a refuge for the wayward, the wandering, and the lonesome of all ages. If the gates that hold the tears of this world were to open, we'd all be washed away. If the story those tears have to tell were spoken, we'd nothing left to say. The water is slowly rising. The water, it just keeps rising. Thinking always of her first and best love, Calvin Yoon, swept out to sea on the day of the forever wave, never to return. Now there's not enough love in all of San Francisco to fill that void, though her babies and her gentlemen callers do their best to try. Sounds like Gemma Baxter's in fine form today. Angela says she saw Voltaire Lottie from the draft house sniffing around her garden. I'm surprised he hadn't been there already. It's shameful, really. Them carrying on with all them babies underfoot. After all, it's how babies get made. And is that what's needed? More babies and more mouths to feed? We've barely got the resources to feed ourselves as it is. Some say the more hands to help, the more resources we'll gain. That Valtteri's a real catch, though. I wouldn't mind a few rounds with him myself. <laughs> Angela, you dirty girl. <laughs> well, I wouldn't. Dear sweet Gemma Baxter, if you can hear this old sailor's voice spin in your dreams, spare him a smile from the rocks. On the other side of the island, Alexi arrives at the Yerba Buena docks. While old Bill and the others unload the dinghies, Alexi will dutifully record the inventory and count out the payments. In this way, he'll have his first pick of the day's treasures and some coins to jingle when the day is done. He can let his side deals lie quiet for a few days, earn his wage like they do on the mainland, a place he's not seen for over 30 years. There you are, Alexi. Go see what Calliope has brought us today. Ahoy there, on. Park your wheels over there and grab a hold of this tow line. Aye, aye, Bill. From the docks that jut out just below Painted Lady Hill, a vast stretch of water covers a great wreckage of girders and glass, concrete and steel. Ruins of a cityscape that once stood tall reclaimed by the water it tried fruitlessly to fortify against. Below these modern ruins lie layers of other histories, docks and shacks and sunken ships, the remnants of shifting sand dunes and salt marshes and shell mounds, 
layers of sediment and story. In every direction, the bones and memories of the original inhabitants shift endlessly in their ancient beds. Their voices mingle together with the rising tide, while the gulls call out to them from the sky. The water today was smooth and calm, the kind of water you can see your face in if you bend close. In my hand, I hold a digging stick and watch for the breath of clams. Their time is almost at an end, and I want to get the very best I can. I hear Grandfather and the other men discussing last year's salt harvest. Their voice is low to avoid startling clams. A family of ducks paddle by, placid and fat. I hadn't seen such a quantity of salt in many years. We still have plenty to trade. We'll visit the village with the good baskets and give them as much salt as they could use in a year. As much salt as they could use in two years. Enough to fill every basket. Spring is here at last, each day becoming a little longer and a little brighter, leaving winter behind the way a blossom leaves a constricted bud bursting forth with new life. The new camp is in the hills where the children can run along the ridges and see the wet world stretching out for miles below them and all the way to the high peaks in the distance etched against the wide blue of the sky. I'll bet I can run faster than that eagle flying by. You can't even run faster than a quail. I know I can at least run faster than you. (laughs) The air is turning cooler and the shadows are beginning to lengthen. Soon, the biggest fish will reach up to the water surface to feed and I'll be there waiting for them when they do. I remember Grandfather showing me how to scoop them from the water with just my bare hands. Now he builds his traps and rests in the shade. But hearing his voice now, it's as if no time has passed at all. Tomorrow is as yesterday. This basket, this body, this beach, these fish, those birds, This land, which holds us all, as a cupped palm holds that which is precious. That which connects us is far greater than we may ever know. Back at the landmark, Grace wakes and lies still, stretching her ears outward, straining to hear the activity in the corridors. Even without leaving her bed, Grace can sense what paperwork has been filed, what pallets unloaded, what patients have been wheeled back inside for a nap, and which have remained on the lawn, taking in the sun. The sun's at its peak, and the landmark is at its busiest, full of activity and hope. Baba Hashemi tending to the elders and the babies. Isabel Flores writing her reports and mediating in the conference room. Papa Carl will be sneaking in the smoke between shipments and calculating the number of boxes he'll be able to fill with rations of grain and oil, salt and candles, batteries and band-aids. The smell of his pipe mingling with the waft of eucalyptus and salt. When I think of Carl, I always think of smoke first. When I think of smoke, I think of Carl finding me the week after the burning time. Wrapped in a sleeping bag at the edge of the water and squalling, 
Loud as a seagull, he says. Helpless and alone. Raised me here at the landmark. There have been many orphans cared for here, but I'm the one who stayed. Soon I'll go down to the coves and check the water levels and fishnets, walk the shoreline and watch for unusual activity, keep my eyes peeled for my own strange bundle, scream at the gulls a bit and sniff the air for a lingering wisp of smoke. Carl Maldorf stands on the edge of the road next to the loading bay and stares out across the Richmond Sound to the rounded curve of Sutro Island, where Soraya Broussard and her foraging collective comb the woods for edibles and medicines. Each week, Carl sends a dinghy to the island to collect the gleanings and add them to the ration boxes along with wild oats harvested by the Mount Davidson congregation and seagrasses collected by fisherfolk. Carl taps the ash from his pipe, fills his lungs with the warm welcome of the noonday breeze, and lets loose with a verse by Rilke he keeps close to his heart. Timeless sea breezes, sea wind of the night, you come for no one. If someone should wake, he must be prepared how to survive you. As if on cue, a slow-moving truck creeps up the road to deposit its treasures at Carl's feet and pick up boxes of rations to distribute. Meanwhile, inside the conference room, Isabel Flores is mediating between the Pemberton Syndicate and the Tank Hill crew. After the Battle of Pemberton, when the Clarendon Heights garden dwellers banded together and planted their flag at the top of the Pemberton family villa, they've been in dispute with the Tank Hill crew over the freshwater spring that burbles up at Corbett and Clayton. Every few months, their dispute surfaces again, just like the freshwater at the heart of it. Just like she always does, Isabel listens intently to their complaint, jotting down notes and nodding encouragement. And, just like she always does, when the time comes to make a decision, she turns it around and hands it back to the disputants. And what can you do to make the situation work for you? As Grace emerges into the daylight, Rajah's bicycle ambulance pulls up and a flock of quietly cheerful nurses hurry out to greet the newcomers. A birthing mother who looks to be around 18 and her anxious life mate clutching her hand as if he were the one in pain. The nurses gently but firmly extricate him from her throwing a scarf over her heaving shoulders and ushering her inside the landmark. Grace smiles sympathetically at the young man. From the look of it, he's from the penitent circle up on Mount Davidson. He wears an unadorned rough cotton tunic and a small cross of oat straw hanging from a silk thread around his scrawny neck. She'll be all right. She's in good hands. The very best. He barely seems to hear her. Rajah holds back politely for a moment, then coughs a reminder that their fee is still outstanding. The young man comes to, takes his pale-as-water hands out of his pockets, and presses a few community coins into Rajah's palm. Grace watches as the young man trudges through the front doors and imagines him standing bewildered in the lobby, looking for a way to help or maybe to hide. She shoulders her pack, waves a fond farewell to Carl, 
and heads off in the direction of Immigrant Point to check for wildlife and wreckage. She lifts her eyes to the brazen blue sky and smiles to see her old, ragged friend soar overhead. In the hate, old Maggie McCarthy stands at her window, letting the sunshine wash her face and gently kiss her sightless eyes. She turns her head toward the scent of fresh bread wafting from Alfonso's cart. He always saves her the best loaf and never charges. Mrs. McCarthy, I've brought you your bread and a small gift of elderberry syrup from me mama. One spoonful in the morning and one before bed, she says. Heaven bless you, my child, and grace to your mama. Is that my man, Alfonso Morales? In the flesh. Just in time, too, for I find myself in need of a cornmeal loaf, and nobody makes it as good as your pops. Got a jar of honey from the mercantile and two hard-boils from Lacey Brugel. I'm going to mosey on up the hill and have myself a picnic snack. I've saved the biggest one for you, Happy. You always come through. The Lord watch you and keep you, Mr. Dubois. Just happy, Mrs. McCarthy. Just Maggie happy. It's an exchange they have every week, but it never grows old for its familiarity, only deeper and more meaningful each time. Good day to you both. And Alfonso hurries on this way, pulling his cart of bread and ringing his bell, clear and loud. Bread in the morning and bread at noon. Bread in the evening and by the light of the moon. Happy Dubois stashes his cornbread in his duffel bag and points his broken-down boots in the direction of Buena Vista Park, home to a thriving outdoor community of aged-out ex-ferals, gleaners, and street performers. Tents nestle beneath the spreading branches of the oak trees. Hammocks and tightropes swing in the breeze. Imogene Galvan grinds acorns in the communal kitchen. Her knuckles jut from her skinny hands, as hard and brown as the acorns she grinds. Louie Louie gives juggling lessons in the playground, while Peas Blossom reads to a group of grade school kids sitting cross-legged in the grass. How Hummingbird brought fire to the world. How Gilgamesh survived his journey to the bottom of the sea. Of Mamiwata and of the Selkies. Decades before the forever wave, Happy's parents had been displaced as teenagers by Hurricane Katrina. And while they managed to make a new life in California, for them, it never truly felt like home. Perhaps this contributed to Happy's own feelings of unrootedness. And by the time the forever wave rolled in, he'd been living on the streets for over a decade. But in the wake of the forever wave, his well-honed survival skills made him one of San Francisco's new minted leaders. Suddenly, he was in charge of scavenging expeditions, helping to build encampments, demonstrating the many alternative uses for common household objects where common and household took on new meaning. As the co-founder of the park's resident artist collective, 
Happy is now both a man with a home and also a purpose. Under his patient tutelage, the collective has grown into one of the city's model communities, as well as its greatest concentration of artists. Muralists and acrobats, music makers and theater performers, dancers and stylists, the people who build the spectacle and the people who enliven it. Happy waves at Imogene at her daily grind and sits on a bench facing the early afternoon sun. Unwrapping his bread and honey, he contemplates the pending sweetness. A pair of doves peck at the ground near his feet, as if to remind him that they too are hungry. He scatters a few crumbs their way and tosses a chunk of bread to Squirrel Nutkin, a mean-tempered rodent whom Imogene frequently chases away from the kitchen with much theatrical cursing. Secretly, Happy thinks, she's as fond of her little ragged nemesis as he is. But just in case, he throws him a little extra bread. Us old dudes got to look out for each other, nuts. As Happy savors his cornbread, a flock of scraper kids bomb down the hill below. Last one to the bridge is a rotten egg! Your mom is a rotten egg. How would you even know what an egg is? How would you even know what a mom is? No breaks, no breaks, no breaks, no breaks! <laughs> they race past the mercantile and Hyacinth Galong laughing in her doorway as she watches them careening down the weed-choked street. Less amused, the neighborhood watchers stand on their stoops and cluster on the sidewalk to complain about such youthful exuberance. Should be a crime, all that noise and hullabaloo. Wasn't too long ago, it was one. Kicking up the gravel and skittering into the bushes. Waking the babies and scaring the chickens. Should take away their bikes. This used to be a nice neighborhood. Just as nice as Bella Vista. Just as nice as Fairmont Heights. With their private security and their checkpoints? Maybe not quite as nice as that. We should start a petition. We should start a working group. We should start a task force. Get Isabel Flores involved. They'll do none of these things. Instead, they'll flounce over to the mercantile for jars of kombucha, and Hyacinth will listen patiently to their grievances and offer her sympathies and a round of lemon drops. The scraper kids will gather joyful on the orange bridge, as they always do, where the elder fisher folk scoop the turgid waters with their buckets and nets for herring and cast their lines out in hopes of striped bass, sturgeon, and halibut. At high tide, the water creeps over the flat surface of the bridge and soaks their shoes, but a good-sized fish will make damp soles worth the trouble. You're listening to The Forever Wave, a radio play for voices written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern, inspired by Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas, and set in the climate-changed San Francisco of 2070. The Forever Wave was written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern and performed by Roy Conboy, 
Jerrica Gamboa, Alia Gilliard, Peter Griggs, Nathaniel Justiniano, Julia Letzel, Mia Pascal, Crystal Piamonte, Edna Mirabrea, Patrick Sims, Megan Trout, and Euise Vise, with audio engineering by Patrick Sims and Nathan Link, sound design by Cliff Carruthers, music by Bandesine Numbre and Mark Groudon, and poetry by Roy Conboy. listening to The Forever Wave, a radio play for voices written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern, inspired by Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas, and set in the climate-changed San Francisco of 2070. Cada día amanezco con una flor en la boca Cada día me levanto de ardor esa flor que brota esa flor de la esperanza esa flor que simboliza un mundo mejor cada día me levanto con el sol en la frente cada día amanezco alumbrada de luz caminando caminante aunque duela para siempre es el sueño de un futuro mejor Ese camino que se extiende hacia el norte Yo no me rendiré Ese camino Es posible que me mate No me importa Porque no me queda otra Yo camino Para mis hijos y mi abuela Porque tengo esperanza De una vida mejor
este camino que se extiende para siempre jamás nos vencerá ese camino en los regazos de mis ancestros yo camino para mis hijos y mis abuelos porque tengo esperanza from their rounds. Raja parks their ambulance outside Lacey Bruegel's draft house to join the rest of the early shift pedicabs for a round of millet beer and chat. Valtteri Lotti, whose propensity for falling too hard and too often in love is the stuff of mostly good-natured jest, serves Raja a frothy pint of cloudy elixir. Now that's what I call a beverage. Good and cold. But warms the insides. <laughs> Explain that one. To quote the before times, ice is civilization. To quote the before times, the fuck? <laughs> Cheers to Raja, who's never mystical, and yet always makes it to last car. Uh, I'll drink to that. <laughs> and probably already have. Cheers to Valtteri whose heart is as big as a barrel of beer and twice as sweet. And who's been seen comforting on the sunset shores with that Gemma Baxter. Much to the surprise of no man. <laughs> Nor woman, neither. While the cat's away. Does that make Valtteri the cat or the mouse? He is the cheese. The big cheese. All this cheese talk has made me hungry. Valtteri, slices of cheese all around and a plate of fried crisp to share. He does as asked and with good humor, but deep inside, where the others cannot enter, he holds his misery close to his heart. Alina Khrushchev, her name. As he wipes down the bar for the 500th time, he keeps one eye on the street, hoping to catch a glimpse of her as she sashays by on her way home from the seam shop. But she does not walk by and cannot feel Valtteri's longing from afar. Though unbeknownst to him, she shares his desire and cultivates her own fertile misery deep within. The kind of misery that loves company, but never quite seems to attain it. I don't care if he is up all night and smells of malt and hard-boiled eggs. I can see his heart is strong enough to lift me up as I climb for the stars. In my dreams, climb together, catching the moon in our hands to light our paths. In my dreams, we dangle our bare feet in the shallows of Strawberry Hill and rest easy in the clover basking in the drowsiness of the daytime, not a care in the world. 
what I wouldn't do if he showed up right now. We'd howl at the moon and nuzzle like wolves. We'd devour each other in kisses and set each other's bodies on fire. What I wouldn't do if she walked through that door right here. I'd hoist her onto my shoulders and we'd spin our way out the door and all the way to the sea to watch the waves. We'd make a blanket of the sky and a mattress of sand and mimic the soft curves of the dunes undulating beneath the stars. (gasps) Val, if you'd be so kind as to pour me another, I have a powerful thirst today. (laughs) As do I, my friend. As do I. While from his overlook, El Capitan contemplates his own unyielding solitude. There's a special kind of lull during this part of the day. Morning over and noontime done, the citizens of San Francisco inhabit their daily routines as if they were players on some great stage, repeating their lines and replicating their actions again and again. When I was younger, I I thought I had plenty of time. Time to live and to love and to travel and to dream. Time to see the world and time to be seen by it. But then, the closed borders. But then the battened hatches of governments each desperately trying to bail themselves out of crisis one bucket at a time. But then the resource wars. But then the forever wave. But then the burning time. So here I sit, an old man wrapped in a shawl like a foundling or a newlywed, swaddled and simple, my face turned up to the sunshine like a California puppy. In the quiet of the afternoon, I remember Lorena. I remember Carmen, I remember Yasmin the dark pools of their eyes, the softness of their hands, the strength of their love. If I had but one time again, I would do it all the same. But if I had three times again, I'd live out the whole of my days with each love in turn. Lorena, her music was the wellspring and source of all her desires. Carmen, whose pastelles were as legendary as her passions, and who never, ever would let the last word be stolen from her mouth. Yasmin, a self-proclaimed water sprite whose nets were always well-mended and whose sails knew how to catch the wind just right. If I try hard enough, I can just hear her laughter, mingling with the shrieking of the gulls. Is that you, my capitan, my prince, riptide of my heart? Is that you, my pearl, Mirena, my wild wave? I ride with the dolphins now. Smooth, slick skin like the skin of your back once was. Our bodies rocking to the rhythm of the boat. Listening to the wet slap, slap, slap of the sea. Yearning, 
to snatch us apart. Our bodies rocking under the moonless sky. The flash of a shooting star illuminating the night in your wide open eyes. As dark and deep as the entire ocean. I love you to the bottom of the sea and back, my brilliant, brave sailor man. And I, you, my water sprite, my spirit, my muse. Hold me close in your dreams tonight. Hold me close to your heart. I'll not come back. Don't leave me, my love. This old heart can't bear that pain again. Come back. Come back. Come back. But from Yasmin, there is no answer. Look, Mama. A neighbor's child ceases chasing his elongating shadow to note. El Capitan is crying. Hush, darling. Don't stare. Come away. And they hurry by, leaving him to weep alone. On the docks, Calliope Carter finishes unloading the day's haul. Calliope has an eye for the unusual, and today is no exception. A waterlogged home brewing kit complete with a cache of empty pony kegs and glass carboys. A collection of rusted gardening tools that could be restored. A chest full of knives and sharpening stones. Alexei's interest is piqued by a brace of bicycle frames, one of which is bright yellow with a green racing stripe, just perfect for Jax's island explorations. He jots down the values and shows Calliope the sum she's earned as old Bill ambles over to conduct the payment. Well now, Calliope, you've done it again. Lacey Bruegel was just here not 24 hours ago looking for some kegs. You always come through in a pinch. And what kind of scavenger would I be if I didn't know how to pull a miracle out of the deep waters when it's needed? I expect now you'll be off to visit Soraya and the Sutro Island crew. Give yourself a bit of well-earned rest and recuperation. In the middle of the spring planning, I'd just be in the way. And I'm exploring a new zone, which, if my calculations are correct, will soon have to call for the Crane Barge. Uh, Each to his own harvest, then. Is that what you're saying? Just as Soraya must dig in the dirt to find her treasures, So must I dive down into the gardens of the sea to dig for mine. Through our efforts, we'll each nourish this land and all who dwell in it. Through our distance, we'll nourish our longing and grow our love. Just uh, don't forget to nourish your own self as you cast your net wide. Always grateful for your wise words. She hands the ferals helping on the docks their share of the take and boards her scavenger's skiff with a wave. Alexi directs the ferals to stack the goods in the warehouse and note their eventual destinations. A gull screeches overhead. He smiles in satisfaction. 
From her vegetable patch on Sutro Island, Soraya Broussard watches the first puffs of fog come rolling onto the horizon. A giant hawk swoops overhead, pointing itself in the general direction of the twin towers that jut out of the bay. Rust-orange sentinels marking the immensity of the forever wave, once soaring high above the water, now half-submerged. Soraya, restless, gazes at the water and then back at the earth. Water. Earth. Water. Earth. A basket of dandelion crowns at her feet. In the murmur of the crashing waves, I hear Calliope. In the chattering of the sparrows, I hear Calliope. In the soft crunch of foliage beneath my hands, I hear Calliope. I hear Calliope. In all things, she is the music of my day and the lullaby of my night. In the swish, swish of each turn of the oars, I hear Soraya. In the musical clinking of baskets and buckets, I hear Soraya. In the gravity-defying flight of the pelicans, I hear Soraya. Soraya resides in all good things, and all things reflect the goodness of Soraya. As Calliope sails the Soma depths, the water stretches out in every direction, a world all its own, and beneath it, yet another world in which Calliope is an expert. Pinpointing the old manufacturing facilities and the submerged homes of preppers and hoarders, digging out their treasures and keeping their secrets. As she lazily paddles past a nautical hall, a single clear voice pierces the afternoon calm. The siren of Nautical Hall leans over the railing of her solitary home in the spire of the half-submerged Beaux-Arts building that was once the seat of San Francisco's government. Now a siren's domain, this stately ruin remains a landmark and a milestone planted firmly against the horizon to the east. Alone, but never lonely, the siren walks, widow-like, along the balustrade. Her snow-white hair, once a torrent of black, flows down almost to her knees, like an ermine cloak. When she thinks backwards in time, she sees nothing, hears nothing, remembers nothing, feels only a vague sensation of dread mixed with wonder and a blurry aura of forest green. No one is even sure when she came to Nautical Hall, including herself. It's as if she emerged from the bas-relief of the rotunda, an otherworldly being. It's said that she sings in eight languages, but speaks in none. A work of art 
ensconced in Beaux-Arts granite from a bygone era. She spots Calliope and waves her close, dangling a bucket from a long length of old telephone wire. Calliope loads the bucket with tinned fish, dried fruit, and a dozen underripe lemons, and sends it back up to this most unlikely mascot. From her own island home, Sister Precious Little sweeps the circular stairway of Coit Tower and composes a sermon, drawing a parallel between artistic creation and godly creation, awaiting the golden hour when she'll deliver her sermon upon the mount. She surveys each direction and says a little prayer to set the mood. Hail, Sylvester, full of grace, the Lord be with you. Blessed are you among queers, and blessed is your extended dance mix of You make me feel Holy Sylvester, mother of disco, give us your eternal blessing. Now and at the hour, the party begins. Amen. From the rocks below, the sea lions bark their approval. At the draft house, Valtteri Lotti leans his sorrowful bulk across the bar, watching the windows. The slanting light glows golden along the sills, filling the bar with an aura that could be described as holy. Lining the bar and at every table, a noisy congregation toasts the promise of tomorrow. Snatches of song, stale jokes, hubris and laughter blending together into a mighty cacophony. The door swings open, and in come the delegates from the Pemberton Syndicate and the Tank Hill crew. Negotiations over, they've come to seal their truce with a couple of rounds and a handful of hardboils. One of the Pemberton Syndicate is dispatched to the bar with a collective purse for the order. Another unslings a guitar from around their shoulders and nods to the Tank Hill crew, who've brought instruments of their own. They cluster around a table in the corner and sing. As they sing, the door swings open again. This time, it's Bill, Alexi, and On, ready to celebrate their haul. They order up a round of bathtub gin to go with their beers and smugly clink their glasses before downing their shots in unison. Alexi's got the bike frame he's bringing home to Jack slung over his shoulder. A satchel of walnuts for Jazz, a bag of good quality merino yarn, and a pound of fresh buttery goat cheese for Carolyn. It's been a good day. A straight and narrow day. A day of modest work and modest reward. He exhales a whisper of gin and sips his beer carefully. He could still go down the wrong rabbit hole tonight. The sun's not even set, and the possibilities are endless. He rolls the bitter millet brew around in his mouth 
and smiles at a joke flying past and wills himself to stay on course. On, spotting Raja across the room, goes over to flirt. Hey, On, long time no see. Friend Raja, any time spent apart from you is far too long. I like that haircut. I like it too. I like your boots. I like your tattoo. Is it a real one? Do you want to lick it and find out? Well, this conversation just got interesting. <laughs> it did, didn't it? Buy you a drink? Well, maybe just one. And before the words are even out of their mouth, another pint is placed before them with a wink and a nod from Volteri. On her way home from the mercantile, Hyacinth looks in on old Maggie McCarthy, making sure she's bundled up for bed and that all of her limbs are in working order for the morning ahead. Not quite ready to give up the ghost, am I, Hyacinth? You'll outlive us all, Maggie. Praise be. And at the apricot house, the Kincaids prepare themselves to greet the night. Mrs. Kincaids relinquishes her perch on the porch and pads down the hallway and into the parlor where her deceased husbands sit together, nodding over a game of invisible dominoes. Husbands, soon it will be time to go to bed. Tell me your tasks in order. I'll, I'll shut the windows and bar the doors. I'll tuck the spiders into their webs and water the mice. I'll turn down the covers and plump up the pillows. I'll take the pajamas from the drawer marked pajamas. And then you must take them off. The streets are dark as Alexei wanders home, past the fruit carts and the tamale ladies, past the mercantile and up and over Buena Vista, past the apricot house and all the quiet doorsteps and driveways. He revisits snatches of drinking songs in excited bursts as he stumbles and creeps along the broken pavement. He lurches in through the front door, swaying with the exertion of the day and with drink. In one hand, he clutches the bike frame as if it were a shield. In the other, the satchel of walnuts. Jax and Jazz look up from their books and race over to receive their gifts as Carolyn emerges from the next room to do the same. Alexei greets her with a guilty peck, proffering the yarn and then the cheese, which has softened and become slightly greasy to the touch, like the blocks of colorful wax that neighbor Collins gifts to Jazz, who uses it for modeling. But Carolyn merely laughs, takes a large bite, and carries the rest of the cheese to the kitchen to place it gently in the ice chest, wraps her arms around Alexei, who's followed her there, and gives his face a cheesy lick as he pretends to struggle, and then wraps his arms around her, too. <laughs> And what else have you brought me this night, Alexi? What else would you have me bring you? Mm, the light of the stars and the dark side of the moon. Is that all you want? I guess I could settle for something a bit more... down to earth. Now we're talking. And nibbling and giggling, they wend their way to bed leaving Jax and Jazz to roll their eyes at each other and return to their books. 
While at the landmark, a new mother holds her baby close to her warm breast as the night wraps around them both like a heavy blanket. She murmurs and hums a tune as wordless and ancient as the wind that rustles in the eucalyptus branches. A new father watches over both, a flickering candle against the encroaching darkness, his hands folded in quiet prayer, or perhaps only in reflex. Outside on the loading dock, Carl smokes one last pipe, listening for the soft call of the great horned owls and the chorus of the coyote packs. A warm hand falls on his shoulders, and Dr. Hashemi is there by his side. Carl reaches up and holds on to that warm hand, giving it a thoughtful squeeze. Liebling, Carl, what news? A girl, six pounds, 11 ounces, a good day for San Francisco. Alhamdulillah. And you? 20 pallets of rice, a tanker of peanut oil, three pedicabs, and a new plow. A good day for San Francisco. And now, here's our Grace, back from her latest adventure and ready for her watch. The anchovies are spawning. There's a fresh rain on the horizon, and high tide was two inches higher than yesterday. We could all do with a little rain. And now, Carl, I'm ready for my poem to see me through the night. Yes, a poem, Junam. We're ready to receive the word. This one was written by Roy Conboy. Deep in night, when I think I'm not sleeping, I hear again the waves pound, break, and retreat. That watery rush and rumble disturbs me with its power, disarms me with its yearning. On the beach, across the street, in my dreams. They inhale and exhale as one, looking up at the moon as it arcs over their heads like a lighthouse beam cutting through the fog. As if on cue, the low moan of the foghorn resonates through the air, lulling the living and comforting the dead. Wrapped in a cocoon of quilts, curled on a mattress on the floor of her garden shed, Soraya hugs herself close, imagining Calliope in her fierce grip. Calliope. My Calliope. Chief muse of my heart. What tree branches hold your sleeping body in place of my arms? While Calliope from her hammock gazes through those branches and at the heavens above. Soraya, my Soraya, I look to the stars in the sky to find your eyes. Only your beauty outshines them. Good night, Soraya Brassard. May the billowing fog help to fill the hollows left in your heart by your elusive love. Good night, brave Calliope Carter. May your expeditions be ever fruitful. Good night, sweet Gemma Baxter and all of your babies. Good night, Isabel Flores. As you burn yet another candle to its sputtering end, 
and tally up your reports to fit each individual into one grand equation. Good night, brave Maddie Kubrick. May your bones rest easy in the deep. Good night, Luis Mendoza, mi mejor amigo. I give your Adelina to Ropa y Libros before she left for the mainland. She sends you her love. My Capitan, my Capitan. Compañero, there will always be a place for you here on the ship. I'll join you sooner than you think. While in her own nighttime reverie, surrounded by the snoring, sputtering, dreaming bodies of her babies, Gemma Baxter sings to herself, accompanied by the foghorn's groans. Oh, won't you take me to the water? Mm. Take me to the water. Oh, won't you take me to the water? Lay me down, lay me down at her side. Mm. Oh, won't you take me to the water? Oh, take me to the water. Oh, won't you take me to the water? Lay me down, lay me down at her side. Midnight rolls in with the rest of the fog, slow and deep. The lamps and candles are out. The generators quiet. The moon obscured by mist as it sails high above the earth and sea. Even the coyotes are asleep, leaving only the owls to keep watch over the sleeping city. A city of survivors and visionaries, of virtue and vice, of anarchy and entropy, of the living and of the dead. From the crumbling cliffs along the western edge to the lonely peaks and hidden coves, from the top of Fertile Strawberry Hill to the bottom of the last barrel of Lacey Brugel's beer. From the echoing corridors of the landmark to the clattering of the Yerba Buena docks. From each bedroll and sleeping bag, cottage and camper, feral house and houseboat, the citizens of this extraordinary land will continue on. And on. And on. Thank you for listening to The Forever Wave, written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern, inspired by Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas, and set in the climate-changed San Francisco of 2070. The Forever Wave was written and directed by Nicole Gluckstern and performed by Roy Conboy, Jerrica Gamboa, Alia Gilliard, Peter Griggs, Nathaniel Justiniano, Julia Letzel, Mia Pascal, Crystal Piamonte, Edna Mirabrea, Patrick Sims, Megan Trout, and Uis Vise, with audio engineering by Patrick Sims and Nathan Link, sound design by Cliff Carruthers, music by Bandesin Nombre and Mark Groudon, 
and Poetry by Roy Conboy. Oh, won't you take me to the water? Oh, won't you take me to the water? Oh, won't you take me to the water? Lay me down, lay me down at her side. Won't you take me to the water? Oh, won't you take me to the water? Oh, won't you take me to the water? Lay me down, lay me down at her side. Listen to her calling. Oh, listen to her calling. Take me to the water Oh, won't you take me to the water Oh, won't you take me to the water Lay me down, lay me down at her side talking to Burrito Justice, a longtime collaborator and co-creator of the Bikes to Books Literary History Bicycle Tour and Mapping Project, which we founded in 2013. Hello, Nicole. How Welcome, are you? Welcome, Burrito. I am doing great. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Even better now that I'm here talking with you, my oh. longtime collaborator and friend. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's, you know, I was thinking about our Long-time collaboration, <laughs> our project, our journey. Projects. Our 
one of the things that I really loved about Bikes to Books is the fact that we keep iterating on the theme. Mm. Uh, to date, since 2013, we've created four maps. Four maps? Four maps. Wow. Yeah, you're right. Four maps of the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, two tours plus kind of an emergency weird tour where we went somewhere we <laughs> COVID <tour>. didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> we had a COVID tour, an online Twitter tour. We've done some lectures. We've participated in community history events. We've had beer socials. Built a community. We really have. And in a lot of ways, this project feels like an extension of our collaboration. So what do you think of that? No, I totally agree. Um, it's, it's funny because I remember when I, you know, you tracked me down on the internet to make me help you make maps, which I, you know, I was like, who is this person? And then uh, sort of evolved into this, um, you know, teamwork making this dream work where we kind of come through and are making these really interesting things that I never would have done on my own. Um, so it's been really, it's been a very interesting and intriguing journey. And I just look at what I've learned um, and the people we've met in the process has been, has been fantastic. Well, something I've learned along the way is I'm a map person, which I never <laughs> would have expected to be. I've always really had a fascination for maps, mm -hmm. but in all honesty, uh, and anyone who's been traveling with me knows this very intimately, I have the worst sense of direction. <laughs> I cannot read a map to save my soul. Well, my soul. sense of direction isn't great, but that's why I like maps, you see. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, I'm definitely... getting lost is actually fairly amusing. I've seen it happen more than than you might think. Wow. No, that's really great. Um, and it's great to be part of this sort of uh, project that really forces me to think about geography and space and where I am in space mm -hmm. because my my normal mode is just to get lost. Right, right. And it try and fun. find, which is Discovery. amazing. Discovery I is love great. getting lost. And I've been lost all around mm -hmm. the world and in San Francisco. <laughs> But then disoriented, to, disoriented, lost. <laughs> <laughs> but then to be able to find your way back, it really helps you think about what's under your feet and what's around you. And I think that our projects uh, mm -hmm. together, our mapping projects especially, have really forced me to look at San Francisco from a geography point of view. I mean, that's why I where I started making these maps was because you know I would notice something and want to see you know, how it's in relation to something else. You may not realize how close or how far things are, perspective or angles, or, wow, I can see Sutro from here, and but if I see it from here, and there's this interesting sort of triangulation you get going on. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know if I ever told you this. Uh-oh. Uh, uh -oh. <laughs> but the map of yours that really led me to reaching out to you in the first place was the 2012 map that you and Brian Stokel yes. created of a drowned San Francisco mm -hmm. circa 2070 mm -hmm. after a 200-foot uh, sea level rise. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and obviously that map has also inspired the creation of the Forever Wave. Uh, so I owe a lot to well, this map. You. And I wonder if you would want to describe a little bit about the process that you and Brian took towards creating that map. Well, I mean, the, the, the process was me just sort of messing around on the internet. And then I, had, I didn't know Brian, didn't know who he was, never met him before. And then through the magic of Twitter, when it wasn't terrible, um, he put this map out. He just did a basic cartography, pretty simple map. Um, and then I realized I could just, I, the first iteration I just went through and used like a, um, 
image editing flood function, quite literally, the paint can, you know? And mm -hmm. I would just go in the contours, I would use those, and I just made a GIF. And it probably, that first edition, like if that took me more than like half an hour, you know, and kind of made a GIF, because GIFs are awesome. Um, and uh, 